Welcome all you adventurous readers to the epic worlds of Alfred Durblin, where we explore the life and works of this fascinating but little known early 20th century writer, brought to you by the website beyondalexanderplatz.com. Welcome to episode one. Uh, my name's Chris Godwin, and I've been translating Durblin for pretty solidly the last 10 years. This first episode will take a quick look at who was Alfred Durblin, why does he matter, what does he offer to adventurous readers in the 21st century. And I'm here with my daughter-in-law, Katie. Hi, everyone. Yes, my name is Katie Kavanagh, and I'm actually a primary school teacher. Um, I don't really know anything about Durblin, um, but I'm very excited to learn. And my role here is to pepper Chris with lots of questions and try and keep him on track a bit. Um, and as we go through the series, if we have questions from listeners as well, we will try and embed them into our episodes. Yes, indeed. And my goodness me, what a lot of questions there are. There's, uh, I mean, Dublin lived through quite a chaotic time in the first half of the 20th century. I think, yes, I think for all of our, um, I mean, Alfred Dublin is a very niche topic, which is perfect for a podcast, but um, for I imagine that some of our listeners already have a bit of knowledge and, and have ended up here, but there'll be quite a few who don't know anything about Alfred Dublin. So I think that's a good place for us to start. So why is he significant in the context of German literature yeah. um, and, and public life, really? Yes, right. I mean, and I do know that <laughs> he was German. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I mean, where to start? I mean, I, I mean, think from the kind of thirty thousand foot view, I think you know we can mark. Durblin as one of the three most significant figures in German literature of the first half of the 20th century. Oh, okay. Well, who were the other two? Okay. Well, the other two, you, well, first of all, we had uh, Thomas Mann. I don't know him. Okay. But <laughs> Thomas Mann is very well known to the general literate English population. Okay. Um, and the other one was Bertolt Brecht. I have heard of Brecht. Okay. Well, Brecht and Durblin were very good friends. And in fact... Brecht said that Dublin had taught him what he needed to know to develop Brecht's, you know, version of the theatre, which was quite a radical break with the tr the traditional way that dramas were presented. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, but the other the other big difference between Mann and Dublin is, as I say, Mann was famous, you know, right throughout the time that he was actively writing, whereas Dublin was sort of you know moderately famous during the twenties. And then at the end of the 20s, published his only worldwide bestseller, which was Berlin Alexanderplatz. That made him world famous. Uh, I say it was a bestseller. And it totally eclipsed everything that he'd written before then. Do I gather from, as, a, as a tone behind what you're saying that um, Mann and uh, Derblin had a rivalry? Mann and Dublin were enormous rivals okay. virtually all through, you know, all, all through the period when they were active. Um, and periodically it erupted into a kind of a public row. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, certainly at the, uh, at the same time that Alexanderplatz was published, um, the German newspapers were trying to prod the Nobel Literature Prize Committee into giving Alfred Dublin the Nobel Prize. Ooh. Well, a month or two after the... Alexanderplatz was published, they gave the, 
surprise to Thomas Mann. Oh, ouch. <laughs> okay, so that must have stung a little then. Yes. Okay. Yes. So can you explain the scope of uh, Alfred Derblin's work, or are we still talking about who who he was? No, we're still we're still at 30,000 feet, okay. so now we want to sort of okay. zoom in on what is his mass of books at, uh, and, and journal articles and so on. Okay. There's going to be an awful lot of stuff to talk about, so we're going to have you know probably two or three episodes on his career, his, his biography, you know his life. Uh, we'll have several episodes on his epic novels because this is the epic worlds of Alfred Derblin, mm-hmm. and also of course without forgetting the, all the enormous output of the rest of his work, which was not the epic novel. Okay, well that's a it's a good place to start then. What was the uh, scope of, or what is the scope of Alfred Derblin's work? I mean, the nine epic novels are the kind of the um, kind of the Stonehenge pillars of of his oeuvre. Uh, I mean, they are, you know, they're they're kind of um, great stone slabs of books. You know, seven hundred, eight hundred, nine hundred pages. Um, sort of built around a new theory of what fiction should be able to do and what historical fiction should be able to do, um, breaking away from what he regarded as a a moribund tradition in, in German literature. So anyway, apart from these nine epic novels, only one of which was published in English during his lifetime, and you can probably guess which one that was. Alexander Platt? It was indeed Alexander Platt. Phew. All the rest... Uh, a couple appeared in English in the 1980s, but one of them in a very mutilated form. And really, it was only when I started to translate the rest of his his his, his epics that he's now, very recently, been available to English readers. You know, you know, more of his work is available, so they can get some kind of perspective on the. Um, you know, on his approach to uh, to the epic. Okay. So um, earlier you mentioned that um, he faced both critical acclaim and challenges with book sales. Can you elaborate on how his works were received during his lifetime? Oh, perhaps you should say a few words about the kind of the state of German literature in the early 20th century. From sort of Napoleonic Wars onwards, there was always nobody writing in German who sort of broke through to become an internationally famous writer, like I mean, the Russians Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, or the French Flaubert and, and so on. I mean, there was Heinrich Heine, who lived most of his life in exile from Germany. Uh, there was the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who lived most of his productive life in exile from Germany. And otherwise, literature being produced inside Germany was very conservative, very backward-looking, you could say. It was not engaging with all the big changes that were happening after the unification of Germany in 1871 under Prussia, which led to a huge kind of industrialization boom and huge um, flocking of people into the big cities. Uh, Most German writers were not paying any attention to this at all. So Dublin was very much the engaged with the big city and the the kind of the 
you know, the, the ordinary people, shall we say, rather than just that small section of educated uh, uh, sort of intellectuals who would become public officials, civil servants, university teachers, um, okay. newspaper editors. Why do, you, why do you think that was? Can you tell us about his career? Uh, yeah, okay. Well, he uh, left school in 1900, which is an easy date to remember. He was actually 22 because his education had been delayed by about three years because of a family disaster, which we'll be getting into in a, a later episode. Um, but with some fa family support, he managed to enrol in uh, university and studied medicine, while also taking some classes in philosophy. Um, then during the first decade of the 20th century, he was mixing in Berlin with the sort of avant-garde which gradually coalesced into what people call the Expressionist Movement. Um, he helped to found the, the leading Expressionist journal called Der Sturm, um, which published some of his stories and, uh, and uh, other writings. But then in 1912, he, during a crisis in his life, which again we'll get into in a later episode, he was stimulated to write this big piece, not just little stories and, and, and essays and so on, but write something really big. And he was fixated by stories of the Far East. He'd been reading a lot about, you know, there was a lot being translated from Chinese literature into German in that period, the first decade of the 20th century. And he focused on an episode of a sectarian rebellion in 18th century China. So that became his first major novel, and the one that really made him noticed. It's called The Three Leaps of Wang Lun, which I actually translated more than 30 years ago. Wow. And is now in its second edition. <laughs> um, and this brought him huge kind of critical acclaim, and he was recognised as a, a very important writer. And, in fact, the Wang Lun book brought him a, a literary prize. Mm-hmm. Chris, can, uh, I, can I just stop you there for a second? So, whilst he is writing, is he still, um, is he still operating as a medical doctor? Oh yes, yes. So yeah. during this time, interesting question. He's had two careers. Yes, he was a medical doctor and he was a writer. And a little later in this podcast, we'll be uh, bringing listeners in on on this aspect of his life of two souls in a single breast. Okay. So then uh, Wang Lun was published during the First World War and towards the latter half of the First World War he wrote his next great big epic which was based on the previous great war in Europe, the Thirty Years' War in um, the early 17th century, mm -hmm. which devastated Germany for over you know, three decades. So that was published in 1920. And again, the critics marveled at the kind of techniques he was bringing to the, you know, to this, this new world of epic fiction. But probably not too many ordinary people sort of actually made their way through the whole novel at that time. Okay. Anyway, the Dublin persevered. He was writing lots of uh, political essays at the time. Yep. And, uh, this time of turmoil in Germany at the end of the First World War, uh, the the uh, the the Kaiser had run away, and there was no government, and the army was furious at having been stabbed in the back by the civilians and having to run away from the Western Front and and so on. Um, but Dublin kept on writing. He then 
his next big epic, when instead of the 18th century or the 17th century, it looked forward to the 27th century. That was called Mountains, Oceans, Giants. My translation was published in 2022. This very forward thinking to to go from the time of writing to the 27th century. Well, this this was a thing. I mean, he was he was trying to get a sense of where life and let's say Western civilization, shall we say, where was it heading? You know, with all these technological innovations, mm. the ability to wage ever more horrendous wars, mm. you know, all these, all these um, things about gender identity, mm-hmm. um, uh, the ecology of the world, mm-hmm. and so on. You know, something right, if we carry on with these trends, what's life going to be like a few hundred years from now? Mm. And so he wrote this enormous sort of science fiction mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. novel, which uh, the... It's really in two halves. I mean, so the second half involves uh, melting all the ice on Greenland. Yeah. I know we're going to be yeah. uh, covering that in a later episode. We, we don't want to go into it too too detailed um, right now. Um, but can you take us up to um, the Second World War? Oh, gosh, yes. Okay. Well, there, there was one more. Before Alexander Platz, there was one more epic he published, which okay. was extremely considered extremely bizarre because he presented it as a kind of a, a poem. Oh, okay. Right? So this is an epic poem in free verse, mm-hmm. which some critics thought was absolutely astonishing and, and really deserved to be you know, studied and emulated by other writers, mm-hmm. but completely clunked with the public. You know, they, said, well, they just had no idea what to do with it. Okay, and why do you think that was? Because it was so strange. It was, well... I mean, the content was fascinating. I mean, I, I loved it. You know, when I was translating it, I'd, I'd love to get imagining all the things you could do with this in terms of, you know, sort of videos and ballets. What or, was it about? It was a kind of Indian epic, but with lots of kind of um, existential philosophy uh, sort of built in. And this is Manas. This is Manas, which I translated and was published in 1922. 20- 2022. 2022. <laughs> not 1920. Yeah. Brilliant. Oh, that's good. Okay. I and and we're going to talk about that as well a bit. Of course. And then and then we had all the kerfuffle with uh, with Alexander Platz, all the publicity and the best selling, and his mm-hmm. publisher at last was happy with him because his publisher had met Manas with the retort, "How on earth did you come up with this?" <laughs> <laughs> so the publisher was very glad when Alexander Platz came along. Oh, that's good. I'm, I think that you could, it's a good segue for me. I I had a um, a quote from Thomas Mann in front of me, and it says, "Lots of people pick up his books, but precious few finish them," which not only you know highlights the rivalry again, but also the complication of of that a reader might have when they're when they're digging into his. Yeah, work. well, I mean, you know, the lay person. Thomas Mann can talk. I mean, he wrote this great 800-page book called The Magic Mountain. Right. It was full of kind of philosophical and political um, discussions mm-hmm. between the inmates of a, 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 a TB sanatorium high in the, mm-hmm. the Swiss Alps. And, you know, some people think, oh, this is a marvellous book. It's a wonderful book. Mm-hmm. It's 800 pages. I mean, I wonder how many... Ordinary readers have actually picked up this book and read it right through to the end. Right. 
Okay, so now I think what what year are we up to now? I know you asked about you know up to the Second World War. Yes, so that's right. right. So we're getting into the exile period. Correct. So of course, I mean, you know, just a, you know, two or three years after Alexander Platz's roaring success, um, the Nazis took over, and uh, Dublin had to flee for his life. Right, so he managed to. Where did he flee to, Chris? Well, he he first he he managed to get out of out of Berlin, and they took the train down south and uh, strolled across the Swiss border. And then why did he have to flee? Well, because the uh, the uh, Gestapo would have arrested him, and he'd have been killed. What for? Being a Jew and being a okay. being a, um, a, um, a perversely sort of socialist or critical kind of writer. Okay, and then so then um, I also have a note in front of me to say that the Nazis banned all of his books except for uh, Wallenstein. Yes. So yeah. why was that? What, what was well, what I was can't get about. Well, so Wallenstein's the Thirty Years' War. Okay. And uh, they probably thought, oh, this is a this is a nice kind of warlike Historical. bit of literature and it'll, people who read it will be ginned up to sort of go off and fight and and whatnot but all the big bonfires the nazis had in may hmm. of 1933 where they all the libraries were looted of all the books by jewish writers hmm. or communist writers hmm. or people who didn't sympathize with the new glorious greater germany and and so on they're all piled onto bonfires and set on fire and, and so dublin's books were among these how did Dublin navigate this period then right well he uh I say he he went off to Switzerland and he had the first few chapters of his next epic novel um, in his in his portmanteau as he strolled across the border, and he said he was actually relieved because the atmosphere in Berlin in the early nineteen thirties was becoming absolutely impossible. the uh, The extremists were dominating the you know all the all the debates and there were street battles between the you know the left and the right and you know. Um, sane voices were just being drowned out so the tension was getting unbearable so he uh, released the tension by finishing off his next um, epic novel which is a very kind of picaresque uh, burlesque uh, semi-light-hearted but also serious um, romp through 1920s Europe by a fallen Babylonian god oh <laughs> Again, very different. Okay. Yes. Interesting. All right. Yeah. So, so he, the, I mean, he and his family eventually um, relocated to Paris. Okay. And then in 1936, the family became naturalised French because, of course, they no longer had German nationality. Yeah. Because, like all the other exiles, the Germans just cancelled their passports and their, you know, their identities. And how long did he stay in France for? Uh, well, until the Germans invaded in uh, 1940. Okay. Um, after the declaration of war, he was taken on by the French um, Ministry of... Uh, I forget what the ministry was called, Ministry of Propaganda, let's say, and was helping to write sort of uh, war propaganda um, uh, for, you know, trying to dishearten the Germans and give encouragement to the French and, mm -hmm. and so on. Didn't sort of get very far. Um, but then when the Germans actually invaded in the spring of 1940, he had to flee from Paris along with all the other officials and so on and he had a very harrowing time which we'll go into in a, a later episode and eventually managed to make his way to Lisbon after all sorts of really sort of frightening things about visas and um, money for tickets and, uh, and and permits to enter and 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 so on um, really you know he was in his 60s by this time right yeah but anyway made it to New York 
um, and then across the continent to Los Angeles, okay. where there was quite a, a large community of German exiles from the literary world, uh, philosophy, music, uh, theater, uh, film, and so on. They were sort of gathering around in Los Angeles. And mm -hmm. like some other writers, Dublin was taken on for a year by uh, MGM. Um, it was a, just a sort of a, a make-work thing to help them get settled. And, you know, the uh, Louis Meyer didn't actually believe he was going to get anything useful for the, the film, you know, his film productions out of this. But Dublin did actually contribute to some some films. In fact, one episode he wrote for a film which won several Oscars that year was actually cut. Oh, and so no. he didn't get an Oscar of being one of the writers on this oh, film. Oh, no. Oh, such a narrow so escape. Close. <laughs> so close. Yeah. But again, you know, he, um, in this rather, you know, milieu of, of Los Angeles where, you know, his English was not very good. Mm-hmm. Um, he was trying to get interest American publishers into doing translations of some of his previous works and yeah. couldn't gin up any interest um, from them and was beavering away on what turned out to be his longest uh, epic work, which was about the um, the end of the First World War and the collapse in Germany in uh, uh, autumn of 1918 and the spring of 1919. And that turned out to be 2,200 pages in the oh current four-volume format. <laughs> wow. And, and what's the name of that one? November 1918. Okay. That was published in English in the 1980s, but in a very mutilated form because it left out the first volume entirely. Oh, and I know that you have interest in the first volume. I've translated the first volume. Okay. <laughs> um, and this, I mean, this in fact is a you know problem that's um, beset Dublin all through his career that, that you know, the things have been cut and edited and whatnot, yeah, there may not have been exactly what he had intended, you know, from when he was writing his manuscripts. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm just going to stop you there, actually, because that's a good point. You talk about in translating, obviously, um, you know, the English language has so many different nuances. And so when you are translating, are there, there are different phrases and different ways you can interpret what he's written down. Have you ever had to do any edits to your own translations? Oh, constantly as you go through, you're always you're always editing and you're trying to get the trying to make sure you've got the tone right mm -hmm. um, that the the word you've selected to represent this sort of German word is actually you know really fits this to somebody seeing it in English for the first time would not know that it was a translation and this, uh, this I think is the yeah the ideal to aim for that the the text should read as if it had been composed in the you know, the language that it's been translated into yeah so you've got to be really on your game when you're when you're oh, things there. oh the the amount of labor involved in mm -hmm. looking the well i mean when i translated uh, wang lun the the first epic mm -hmm. of course i only had paper materials to deal with because we didn't really have internet in those days so you know my German dictionary almost fell apart <laughs> at, the, at the time. And they're so laborious looking things up in there, yeah, compared with now. So, uh, you know, it's been so much faster these last 10 years. Yeah, it will just in instantly check on Wikipedia or, <laughs> you know, online dictionaries and, yeah. and so on. It's much faster. So, uh, so we've covered up to uh, getting to... So we're in LA now, in Los Angeles, in America. That's right till the end of the war, really. Okay. So, yeah. 
And then what happened at the end of the war? Did he go back to, when it was safe, did he go back to Germany? Or uh, Yes, he did, but it was not a happy experience because being now a French citizen mm-hmm. and having previously worked in, you know, on one of the the war ministry or whatever it was that was producing the, uh, the propaganda, yep. he was taken on by the French occupation authority in the southwest of Germany. You know, the, it was occupied by the four powers at yes. the end of the war. So the French had the southwestern part, you know, around Strasbourg, let's say, right. across the Rhine from Strasbourg. Yeah. So he was taken on by them to be a, a cultural officer. Um, and of course, he turned up in a French officer's uniform, and of course, the Germans he tried to sort of um, talk to and discuss things with, you know, were very put off by this. So he had a very lonely winter in uh, 1945 on his own. The family hadn't joined him at mm-hmm. all. Um, stuck in uh, um, in Baden in Württemberg, you know, with the empty shops, nothing in the bookshops, um, not very much to eat, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and. Uh, yeah, so that was that was quite hard. I mean, gradually, I mean, he he founded a um, a new cultural journal um, while he was there, which ran for about five years. Um, he managed to interest occasional publishers in bringing out some of his, you know, stuff from the, the mm-hmm. pre-exile period, mm-hmm. but they they appeared in a very kind of spotty fashion, you know, like, I mean, one one of his tri- trilogies, the trilogy which I translated and was published in ni- <laughs> 2023 as The Land Without Death. Okay. This was a trilogy, right? Three items, but the, they were published a kind of year apart um, in different colour covers and so on, so nobody knew that they were connected. Right. And so now uh, we're in the 1950s. 1950s, his health was failing. I mean, he was still, you know, uh, for his 70th birthday, for example, um, uh, friends and colleagues organised, uh, uh, you know, events and a, um, what the Germans call a Festschrift. And that was 1948. You know what a Fest Festschrift is? I don't know. Festival. Yeah. It's a, no, 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 no. It's a, <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a festive volume of people writing or contributing essays and or or. Oh, okay. you know, congratulatory notes or something to to some uh, you know b- b- eminent person. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. So he so hadn't been forgotten. He hadn't been forgotten. No. So yeah. So in 1948, he had this festschrift for his 70th birthday. Okay. The East Germans were very keen to sort of get him to sort of come over to East Berlin and help with the cultural revival uh, uh, in the East, but he'd. Um, He'd converted to Roman Catholic while he was in Los Angeles, and I think he was a bit suspicious of the East German uh, regime, which, right. well, I mean, East Germany was very Lutheran, right? Mm-hmm. Protest- Protestant Lutheran. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he, he didn't go, he didn't go to uh, the East. And then <clears throat> he died, so his health declined in the 1950s, and he died in 1957. That's right. Yeah, um... And uh, we, uh, we could mention, during the German invasion in 1940, uh, it had been a condition of the family being given French citizenship that his two then teenage sons, um, high, upper teenage sons, mm-hmm. should enroll in the military when, you know, when the call came. Right. And one of these sons, Wolfgang, mm-hmm. who it turns out was a genius of a mathematician, mm-hmm. um, died during the... French invasion in the spring of 1940, and his parents knew nothing. They just, you know, lost touch with him. They had no, any idea what had happened to him. Mm-hmm. So they discovered, after going back to 
Paris in 1945 that what had really happened to him, he, he was, they managed to find out where he was buried, which was a little, um, a little village churchyard in the Vosges hills mm -hmm. in, uh, in east of France. So Alfred then was buried alongside Wolfgang in this little churchyard. Okay. And then his wife Erna took her own life a few months later. Oh, that's sad. It's very sad. Mm. And she was then laid beside Alfred. I'm assuming you know? she took she was she was so full of grief. <sighs> oh, she yeah. I'm you know, uh, it was a very it was a very curious marriage. I mean they it, it was a very stormy marriage. Mm -hmm. But um and we'll get into this later. Mm -hmm. The sins of the fathers uh, thing comes comes into it because um, Dublin remained loyally the husband of Erna mm -hmm. right to the right to the end, even though they were actually very ill suited to each other. Right. Yeah. But the the story of why he he did that then we can cover we'll, in a we'll talk later. About later. Okay. Yeah. And they were buried in the same churchyard. In the same churchyard beside uh, Wolfgang. Okay. Yeah. And you said he had two children. No, he had uh, four sons. Oh, four sons. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. So uh, and are are all of them buried together? Or were they... No, no, I don't think so. Yes, no. I, I mean, I'm Klaus uh, Wolfgang's brother. Mm -hmm. Um. Also. You know, had a quite a harrowing time. He stayed behind in France and then had to eventually flee to Switzerland and spend several more years in Switzerland. But at least he was found safe and sound at the end. And then uh, Stefan, the youngest, accompanied them to Los Angeles to finish his schooling. Okay. And then I think at the end of the war, he uh, he uh, was enrolled in the or he was called up into the American army. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, his Stefan's son, um, Francis uh, actually got in touch with me earlier this year um, to see how we could, you know, collaborate on sort of making Dublin's work better known um, in English. So, you know, that was a very nice little surprise. Mm. Yeah, Fantastic. Okay, so I think we've got to the end of his life. So that, that concludes that. Um, and it would be good. I know that we, um, you have put together, Chris, um, you brought a, a piece of um, an essay called Two Souls in a Single Breast. Yes, this was, um, I mean, in the 1920s, newspapers were always sort of hungry for words to fill up their pages, and they, they kept circulating little questionnaires to uh, to various sort of public figures in the hope that answers to these questionnaires would, uh, you know, give them a column or two okay, to, so to fill up. This, so this was written in 1928. 1928. This, the height this, of his... Popularity, the height of his fame. Well, it was just before Bill and Alexander oh, so was not published. Right then, no, but this was his fiftieth anniversary year. He was on the up. He was on the up. There were, you know, there was lots of celebrations in the newspapers of this this great writer, you know, with his, you know, the the uh, epics he's published before and all his literature, his um, his theories about literature and his political essays and so on but uh, a particular newspaper called the uh, the Berliner Volkszeitung the Berlin People's Paper mm -hmm. in April 1928 they uh, they must have got this idea of getting two public figures to interview each other and then give uh, you know <laughs> they'd be able views. to read the, the views but here Dublin thought oh 
Right, you know, he's been having this dual career of doctor and writer all along, so we've got two people already. I love this. I hear it's so clever. And yeah. it's, it's just the way that he's, he's they're so different. So the first extract is as Dr. Derblin, the neurologist, uh, and he's talking about Derblin, the writer. Yeah, and I think you should read this first bit, and then I'll oh, okay. read the second bit. Ooh, okay, great. <clears throat> um, I need to put, put a... Uh, so, academic head on for as a neurologist I feel <laughs> okay as a doctor I'm only vaguely aware of the writer of the same name to tell the truth I don't know him at all I work in the east end of Berlin in a medium-sized medical practice really not a big one at all I am a neurologist and this activity takes up virtually my whole day I have no great leanings toward literature find books quite boring and as for books by the man who you tell me bears the same name as me I have sometimes come across them by chance at the homes of acquaintances but dipping into them I was left completely cold and uninterested this gentleman seems to have a good imagination but I cannot follow him down that road on my income I cannot afford trips to China and India so I have no way to check up on what he writes and anyway for this kind of thing I prefer original reports i.e first-person travelogues of which I am a keen reader and another thing I cannot get to grips at all with the style of this man the author who bears the same name as me it is just too difficult why should anyone tired out after a hard day's work be asked to wade through such stuff of his own accord and allow me please a general remark which may come across as a bit political or ethical more so than his books, I am familiar with this writer's occasional effusions as delivered to me by the newspaper, which of course I read. I must confess I cannot make head or tail of the man from a political angle or in general. My appetite for knowing him better is not in the least improved by this effusions. Sometimes he seems to stand squarely on the left, even the extreme left, maybe left squared, and then he says something that is either not thought through, which is unacceptable in a man of his years, or makes out that he is above the party's absurd, authorial arrogance. In short, it was you, editor, who asked for my opinion of this writer, the man with the red nose. The coincidence of names led you to do so. I myself would never have bothered with him, any more than with any other young author, and I, I say again, the gentleman is almost a complete stranger to me. He is of no interest to me. I am not related to him by blood or marriage, and I could not care less about his verdict on me, which you tell me you are soliciting from him. Whatever apparently mischievous assertions he may cast will not touch me." Wow, there's quite a lot there that we'll be going into in later episodes. But uh, let's see how the writer now confronts uh, this strange uh, neurologist, right? Okay, the writer so you are now in role. I am in role, right? The writer Dublin the, writer. the neurologist Dublin. Here we go. Even though it is Easter, and as you can imagine, I'm buried under piles of work and questionnaires and so on, I'm most grateful to you, editor, for setting me this remarkable task and, in a certain sense, enriching my circle of acquaintances. I'm currently working on a Berlin novel. I mean an epic work in everyday language, the action of which takes place in the east end of Berlin, around Alexanderplatz and the Rosenthaler Gate. 
So your request for my comments on the neurologist of the same name was an interesting lead. Maybe it can be another source of material, I thought, along with the Salvation Army, the Slaughterhouse, and the criminal dossiers. So I went over there, and now I report back. <clears throat> the man is sprightly and makes not too bad an impression. I attended his clinic and sat in his waiting room. A waiting room is the most remarkable milieu you can imagine. And when I introduced myself to the gentleman and we had a good laugh about the coincidence, God knows our origins could not be more different, he told me lots of things which, with his permission, I noted down there and then. These general practitioners are not to be envied. I saw the peculiarly stressful work that kept him busy, and this mostly with the strangest kind of patience. I'm sure that he's no untypical example of this specialism, but the very fact of his toiling here anonymously did endear him to me. He's my exact opposite, I realised as he busied himself with practical tasks and spoke and observed. I, the perpetual solo dancer, or prima donna as my publisher once called me, he a grey soldier in a silent army. I am sure I made no great impression on my namesake. Sometimes I grew rather nervous when he gazed at me in a psychotherapeutic kind of way. I have a few defects in that area, complexes probably, and his experienced nose no doubt sniffed them out. Please do not be angry when I confess that for this reason I did not pursue any deeper acquaintance with him. To tell the truth, I did not feel very comfortable sitting across from him. Too, too many unpleasantnesses come to mind in such a situation. But I re retain a good memory of the small, slender man with the doctor's pince-nez, and I would be delighted to know, if you can betray the secret, what this anonymous man had to say about me, whom he certainly saw not as a writer, but merely as a human being. NC. <laughs> well, what do you think of that, Katie? I really enjoyed that. I think that's great, because they're so different. Um... And and you can that really comes across in the writing as well. You can see you know, he's much more relaxed as a, in in role as his, as the writer himself, um, and seems a bit more detached in role as the neurologist. So they're so completely different. Well, yeah, but I, I mean the neurologist is speaking as the kind of the man in the street. Yeah, isn't he? Well, all these artifarty books, you know, he's got the time to read that. That's it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, but uh, I mean some of the things in you know, I mean the. The, the 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 two souls in one breast aspect actually comes through very clearly in the way that he described how he would set about writing one of his epic novels and we'll be going into this in more detail in a later episode but he he really was writing in a kind of a trance mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the uh, the philosopher Günther Anders who who met Dublin in the, in the in during this period um, as she said, he, uh, you know, it was as he he wrote as if he was hypnotized, and and produced creations which were greater than the creator. Now I did write something down earlier. Um, now what was it? Uh, in something you sent me, Chris, um, uh, uh, quoted from him that he recognized. Um, that for him to start writing, there must have been a seed, a spark 
and that it unraveled like a ball of string from the beginning to the end. So he implied also that he was relieved when it was finished. Well, once he'd finished a book, he just sort of put it aside. He, he really, you know, I mean, he hardly even read the print, you know, the big, printed page proofs. They are big books as well yes. in, no, no, in he, domain. Yeah, no, they were. Uh, and I mean, early on, he had described his juvenile writings. He said he felt towards these writings like a man with a cold feels about his sniffles. <laughs> in other words, it's just sort of can't wait stuff, to get rid of stuff it. to be got out. And, and thrown you know thrown in the bin you know this kind of, I wonder how know. this compares to other authors as well I mean some of them, question yeah some of them I guess would feel similar but others the, yeah. like their baby but I mean this this procedure did to impart a very kind of special tinge to Durblin's writings which are generally you know they're very recognizable but there is nothing kind of artificially sort of um um, you know, clever dick kind of mouldings to show how clever I am in such a, you know, it all comes across as very real. Okay. Right? And this is a thing that people comment on Dublin's writings generally. That it, 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 he presents things that are very real to you, even when he's talking about extremely kind of, um, you know, culturally distant sort of things. You can, you can really feel this is the world. Mm. Okay. So, Chris, if listeners would like to find out a little bit more, can you tell us about where they can go to? Yes, of course, the website. <laughs> What's your name? I, the name beyond, of Beyond-Alexanderplatz.com. And we'll be putting that link in the show notes. Yes. So the, the idea was that this would be beyond Alexanderplatz because everybody knows about Berlin Alexanderplatz already. The website has got a lot of stuff about Alfred Dublin's life and career and as well as... Uh, PDFs of those as yet unpublished translations. So do go and pay a visit. We should also say that each episode will have a similar frame around it. So we will start by introducing a theme or something about Alfred Derblin and that connects to one of the, the themes that he's written about. Yeah. And then we will be um, reading an excerpt from one of his... Yeah. Well, his writings, yes, you know, which uh, will help to stimulate the readers to go and look more deeply into the uh, in, into the works. Brilliant. All right. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been a fun episode. Well, thank you so much, Katie, for setting it up. All right. Bye-bye, everyone. Uh, Bye-bye, everyone. We'll hear you. See you next time. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Epic Worlds of Alfred Dublin. Join us next time to explore more about this fascinating writer's life and works. Meanwhile, visit the website beyond-alexanderplatz.com for posts about Dublin and some of his unjustly neglected contemporaries, as well as downloads of translations. So until next time, happy reading.